All right. Let's talk tonight about the goodness uh, of God. Does anybody in here enjoy watching nature shows? Ever like that? Uh, I enjoy it. Uh, I know for some people that's a big old snooze fest. Um, and sometimes I do snooze while watching nature shows, but I like them for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it reminds me um, of how little I know about the world, right? There's so much more out there than I know. Uh, and secondly, and, and I have to, you have to bring it to the nature shows these days because most of the time they don't talk about God. But when you bring God to it, it doesn't it increase your gratitude at just how amazing and vast his rich generosity is as he's pouring out generosity on mountains and streams and oceans and so forth. Uh, nature is this great teacher. Uh, I remember when HDTVs first came out. Remember that? 2006, and you realized all the people on the news who had freckles that you didn't think had freckles before <laughs> because you could see them in you know, high definition. Uh, for some, that was good. For some, that was a bad development. Uh, but I remember at that time, uh, BBC came out with their Planet Earth series. And it's, a, it's still a great series. And I, I just remember thinking, wow, it's like you're really there. And I watched those. I was in college or right out of college. And I, I watched them one after the other, just, just seeing all the wonderful things in ocean and in sky and on land. Well, this psalm, whoever wrote it, we're not told who wrote it, whether it's David or who. Uh, this psalm is trying to teach you two things about God from nature. And both things are important, and they can't be separated, all right? It's trying to teach you first, God is great. Look at verse 1. O Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. There's, there's no doubt about it. When we look at creation, for God to have created this whole planet and all of its diversity, he must be immense. He must be infinite. He must be inexhaustible. But at the same time, this psalm is trying to teach us that God is good. It tells us that God opens his hand and all the things that he made are fed when he opens his hands. That he causes the water to flow between the valleys so that it waters the ground so that everything on earth can eat. God's generosity and goodness is also expressed in his creation. In fact, those two things, greatness and goodness, you should never separate in your heart. And I should never separate. We're tempted to separate it sometimes. But like somebody give me an example. When are we tempted to separate God's greatness from his goodness? Calamity. When calamity happens. Or it could be personal calamity. It could be, you know, international calamity. It could be somebody else's calamity. In those moments we think, all right, you know, God, God, I'm not doubting you're great, but are you good? Right? Uh, other times we may think the opposite. Some people tend to say, well, God, I know you're good, but are you great? Are you really in control? Because it doesn't seem like it. This psalm is reminding you, you should marry in your heart those two things together. Because the great God is always good. And the good God is always unquestionably great. That's the reason why he's able to express his goodness so profoundly in the world that he's made is because he has the greatness in, that, that enables him to express the goodness. Right? God, God is not an impotent God. God is a potent giver of all good things, an inexhaustible fountain of everything good. And so David, or the psalmist here, is playing his best David Attenborough. Do you know who that is? 
Uh, he, he was the uh, announcer, the whatever you call it, the narrator of the Planet Earth series. He's got a great voice, British voice, so it makes everything sound so smart, right? Uh, David is doing his best, David Attenborough. Uh, he is taking us through the various parts of creation to say, see that? God is great, God is good. See that? God is great, God is good. See that? God is great, God is good. And oh boy, do we need to be reminded of that. So let's look at it tonight. There are three things he tells us. First of all, in verses 1 to 9, he shows us the house of God. That's his word, that's his word picture for creation. Creation is God's house. Then secondly, in verses 10 to 30, he takes us through the economy of God, the way God manages his household, his house. And then lastly, in verses 31 to 35, he calls us to the praise of God. He teaches us how we can declare God's goodness as humans in a unique way, uh, different than all the other creatures. All right, so first of all, let's look at the house of God. Anybody ever visited a great house before, a a very big, wonderful house? Jan? The Biltmore. I knew you would think of it. I knew somebody would say it. That's what I was thinking of, too. Yeah, that's right. There's many great places to visit all around the world. Never been to that one, but definitely been to the Biltmore. Anybody else been there? What, what do you think when you're walking around a place like that? What a waste. Yeah, <laughs> what a waste. Um, wow, these people were quite arrogant. You know, you may have all those kinds of thoughts. Uh, they had more time and money than they knew what to do with. Uh, but you also might think, man, you know, is, this, is heaven going to be? I mean, you know, the, it might remind you uh, of something greater above, right? A place that is being prepared for us, for us to live with God. Um, I think about that when I go to places like the Biltmore. Now, heaven will make the Biltmore look like a shack, right? In every single way. Um, not to mention the fact that heaven has spiritual architecture, <laughs> That this world knows nothing of, right? The spiritual riches to fill that spiritual architecture that the world knows nothing of. But what, what this psalm is telling us is the very creation itself was designed by God to be his house where he could display his goodness to his creatures, to his people, and they could in turn know him and return thanks to him for it. Notice how... All the words used, whether it's verbs or nouns, there in verses 1 to 9, are all kind of household words. He's taking us through God's Biltmore, the universe. He says, first of all, in verse 1, God is clothed with splendor and majesty. He's taken the light uh, as as a garment. He's covered himself with it. Uh, And so in this grand house of God, God is dressed to the nines with light, the light of the sun, the light of the stars, the light of the moon, the light of the lightning. He's, he's covering himself with it. Verse 3, he's laying, or excuse me, verse 2, he's stretching out the heavens like a tent. So the, the heavens are like the roof over the top of God's house that he has stretched out from one end to the other, east to west, north to south. Whether you're thinking about the daytime sky of blue and the, the sun or the nighttime sky of stars, God has stretched it like a tent over the top of his dwelling place. Verse 3, he's laid the beams of his chambers on the waters. The beams of his chambers. Imagine it. The, the, the mountains themselves, the, the trees are being presented here as if they're the great buttresses and pillars of this house of God, this cathedral that is the world. 
Uh, God rides on the clouds, verse 3. The wind is his chariot. And so here he's taking us into God's garage, right? In this great house where God has clouds and wind to carry him to and fro. This is all figurative language, but it's very important for us to get the point of it. Verse 4, his messengers are, are winds. His, his ministers are lightning bolts, or as it says in the ESV, flaming fire. By the way, the word messenger is also the word angel. God's angels, God's, the ones that God sends out to do his bidding are like the wind. They're like the lightning bolt. They never cease to move and they move very efficiently exactly where God directs it. The earth is laid on its foundations, verse 5. It can never be moved. This is a stable and steady house. Uh, the deep covered it like a garment. The, the water covered everything. It was above the mountains, but then when God rebuked it, it fled back to where it would remain with the boundaries that God appointed, the, the seashores and the riverbanks and all the places where God said to the water, you can't come past this. God was building and shaping and landscaping his house for a particular purpose because God wanted in this world to display something about himself to his people and to have them receive him as their very own. That's what the world is all about. John Calvin called it a theater. The world is a theater of God's glory. Here I'm calling it a house, a place where God lives and invites us to live with him, to learn what it's like to be God's companion, God's friend, God's son, God's daughter, cared for by God in every way. He's Sending things, he's writing things, he's clothing himself with things, he's laying pillars and beams, and he's landscaping with the waters of the world. That's amazing to think about. Do you know how much of the world is covered with water? Go back to your fourth grade science. 71, I think is what I remember, maybe 70%. Now here's something I learned this week. Do you know how much more water is under the earth's crust? compared to what is above the earth. Yes, several times more water, if you can think about this, is under the surface of the, water, of the earth, under the crust of the earth, like the aquifer and stuff like that, than there is in the oceans and the rivers. There's a lot of water. Uh, you can see, by the way, why when the flood happened, because the, remember the Bible says when the flood happened, not only were the heavens open, but the chambers underneath were open. So some people laugh at the flood story. How can a rain for 40 days cover the whole earth? Well, it says it opened, uh, opened the bottom too. The bottom and the top fell out. <laughs> and the water fell and it rose at the same time. And in fact, it shouldn't surprise us because the Bible says when God created the world, it was covered with water at first anyway. So basically the flood was God telling it to return back to the way it was before he shaped it into his house. He was cleansing his house. And now that his house is cleansed, he, he, remain, he keeps the water where it is. He's promised he's never going to let that water out to destroy the whole earth like he did then. Now, why, are we, why, is, he, why is he going through all this? Well, why does God want us to think, almost like we're watching a nature show, all the little things that God has done to create the world? And I want to tell you this. It's medicine to your soul to think this way. 
Why would I say that? How is this medicine to your soul? Clint? That's right. It does help. How does it help, Alex? God's purpose. It's not. We're not here by accident. Very good. Yes. It's not chaos. It's order. Mm-hmm. It's not random. It's not meaningless. Um, how often do you walk through life not observing these things from a God-centered perspective? Right. Uh, even in the nature shows that I love to watch so much, they don't talk about God anymore in those. It's nature this, nature that, evolution this, evolution that. It's kind of, you know, cut God out of all of it. And what are you left with? Well, actually, a kind of a claim that's rather self-defeating in my view. Right? To make the claim that the world is, is made by random chance occurrences over billions of years. Is, is the same thing as saying it's meaningless. But to say that it came together over a random chance of occurrences over billions of years is itself a meaningful statement. So you're making a meaningful statement in a world that supposedly, according to that statement, has no meaning. Um, in other words, if you don't th- learn to think of God as the creator, you'll paint yourself into an awful corner a corner that we might call meaninglessness or pointlessness or, well, whatever meaning you decide to ascribe to your own life today and tomorrow and the next day, right? You, you have to fill that void somehow, and you'll end up trying to fill that void. How much better is it to believe what Scripture tells us, that God made the world on purpose so that he could dwell there, so that he could stoop all the way down to our level, live with his creatures bless his creatures so that his creatures could stand and say hallelujah god you are very great god i love you god thank you god help me this is precisely what this is saying in fact the 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 miracles of jesus christ if you think about it all the miracles that he performed think about what they all have in common he's healing a blind man here he's making a lame man walk there he's raising a fellow from the dead here he's healing a woman who can't stop bleeding there. He's, he's causing a storm to cease on the sea. He's feeding 5,000 folks with a Happy Meal. What do they all have in common? He's revealing himself as the Lord of creation, right? There's meaning. There's purpose. I've made this world for a reason, and here, here I am in the flesh. You can see me. You can behold the glory of God in Christ. You can see God. And here is God stretching out his hand, doing things that only God can do. And so every now and then, you've got to stop and just think, what amazes you about the creator? What amazes you about creation? Um, Don't drop into a greatness deficiency in your life by thinking only of yourself and human affairs. Consider the world as God's house, built for purpose, a great mansion, that God cares for and invites us to enjoy. That leads us to the second thing, which is the economy of God. You you know the word economy? Remember you used to take in school home economics? I'm going to tell you, that class was named redundantly. (laughs) 
because the word economy comes from the Greek word for home. So in home economics, you were taking home home. Uh, what, what did home economics mean? Somebody is going to have to tell us who took that class. What did you do in there? So, yeah, that's right. Mike, I can see you now, right? Learning how to sew, and I can picture that. Yeah. I learned how to cook a little bit right in there, you know, burnt stuff in the school kitchen quite a bit, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, you learned how to manage the affairs of the home, which is what economics means, the managing of the affairs of a group of people or, or a place. It comes from the Greek word for house because every household needs an economy, needs a a way of managing affairs. Well, if God's house is creation, verses 10 to 30 describes how he runs it. And it's something to be admired, right? Have you ever seen somebody who's good at running things? Have you ever wished you were a person that was good at running things? I know I've, I've often had those wishes when I see people who are just really good at it. Maybe it's in business, they're just really good at managing all the factors involved and they, they just know how to do it. Right now, a few great coaches have just retired from football. Maybe you don't know, but Belichick and Saban, these men were good at managing folks and managing things. Well, look at what God does. It's beautiful. Verse 10, you make springs gush forth in valleys, and they flow between hills. Why does God make the springs gush in the valleys and flow between the hills? Why the streams? Why the springs? Why? To give drink to every beast of the field. Think about it. Every beast of the field. How many beasts are there in the field? It'll blow your mind, right? The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds sing among the branches of the trees. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains, and the whole earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. God sends his water, and everything eats and drinks in the, in, in the animal creation. Last night, I was, I was sitting out at my, in my yard, or yesterday afternoon, after I had trimmed hedges, which you can see by my hands. They were Bougainvillea, so um, they, they bit me back. And I was sitting there, you know, kind of wiping off the blood from my hands, with Stacy near me, and a bunch of birds came and rested on the ground and were just pecking. They were mad at me for taking down the Bougainvillea. But as I sat there, I thought, you know what? Isn't that amazing how many creatures there are in the world and not a one of them depends on any one of us to eat or to drink, and they eat and drink? Now, they, I mean, I know you like to think they depend on your birdhouse that you make, <laughs> but they don't, right? That's just for you mainly to feel good. The birds are going to find a house, right? The bats are going to find a house. Everything finds a house, and everything finds food. Who gives that to them? How does he give that to them? He's saying here, open up your eyes. Look out the window. This is not random. This is God's design. He's the one that drives the water where it needs to go. He brings the rain when it needs to go. He brings the drought when it needs to go so that all the creatures get fed. That extends to human beings, verse 14. Because the grass grows and the cows eat and, the men, and men cultivate the plants and eat the cows and food comes from the earth and wine gladdens the heart of man. Amen? We're Presbyterians. <laughs> wine gladdens the heart of man. 
and oil makes his face to shine, and bread strengthens his heart. Now, this, this is the difference between men and animals. Notice animals just get it. Men have to what? Cultivate it. And when I say men, I mean men and women, right? We all have to cultivate it in order to get it. But when, when we get it, it's still every bit as much a blessing of God that he's given us. Even the, in fact, all the things he lists there are things that are partly God's creation, partly our ingenuity, right? Uh, plants cultivated. Bread. Did y'all know bread, bread doesn't grow at Publix, right? <laughs> it doesn't grow in loaves. Uh, it, grain has to be processed to make bread. Same with wine. Wine doesn't just happen. Men make it. Oil, same deal. And yet, what it's saying here is that no matter how much of our ingenuity is involved in this, that was God-given. It's part of God's economy. He's blessing his household. Even the trees are taken care of, verse 16. They're watered by God abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. And in them, the birds of the air build their nests. The stork has her home among the fir trees. The mountains are the home of the wild goats, and the rocks are for the rock badgers. Just think about all the homes that all the animals find, and you didn't build them. Because God built them. God's economy. God's household. How would you describe God? If, if the world is the household of God, how would you describe it? When you're reading this. What kind of house does he run? Incredibly organized. And organized in a way that makes it almost seem like it's not organized because it's so organized. Which is probably why a lot of people shake their head and think, well, I guess evolution did it. I don't know. Because you can't see God's hand in it, but it's so well oiled that it all seems like it's just happening of itself. And people think, well, maybe it's just been happening this way forever. Because it doesn't ever seem to miss a beat. It's so regular. Wow. Another word that I would come up with is, is generous. In verse 16, it tells us, it uses the word abundant. Abundant. And that is the world, right? Yes, there are times of drought. Yes, there are natural disasters and so forth. But the psalm here is also is not really talking about those things. The psalm here is trying to get us to remember there's abundance that cannot be discounted. Abundance everywhere. Again, how many millions of creatures eat every day and nobody feeds them except God even the lions you know come out and depend on God it tells us for their food and this is a great section there in verses 19 to 23 where he points to the time is also made by God and set by God his household runs on time the moon marks the seasons how does it do so How does the moon mark the seasons? Phases of the moon makes what? Months, yes, which leads to years. The sun knows it's time for setting. Yeah. God makes the darkness and it's night. And in the dark, all the animals come out and eat. And when the sun rises, they go back to their house. And then all the men come out and work on their food. And then they go back in the evening. And then the animals come back out. And God has set a time to his household where everybody can get fed. Right? Animals get fed by the generosity of God. Human beings by the generosity of God. And by their own ability to cultivate. 
right? Which does, of course, lead to lots of problems because of human sin. But again, this psalm is not focused on that right now. This psalm is focused on how God is giving abundance and how we ought to recognize it's God behind it. It's his economy of his household behind it. You can see why he says in verse 24, Lord, your, your works are manifold. They're multiplied many times over. We can't even count them all. Uh, they're so wise. The earth is full of your creatures. I mean, just look at the sea, he says, how great and wide the sea is. And it teems with creatures that you can't even count. Living things, both small and great. Think about it. What's the smallest sea creature you can think of? Plankton. What's the greatest sea creature you can think of? Whale, right? Big whale. Somebody said Nelly. <laughs> Loch Ness Monster. Well, he, he mentions something like that when he says in verse 26, Leviathan. Leviathan. Maybe you've heard that name before. It's some kind of sea creature that was great. We don't know exactly what sea creature they're referring to in the Bible when it says Leviathan, but a great sea creature. Maybe it's the whale. And it says there about the Leviathan, God formed it to play in the ocean. To play in it. To, well, you could also translate it, God formed it so that he could play with it. Which is how it, uh, God puts it to Job. Job, do you see Leviathan? Could you put a leash on Leviathan and give Leviathan to your daughters as a gift? God says to Job, that's what I do. I play with Leviathan. I sport with the blue whales. Don't you see? This, is, this is, could be very medicinal to your soul. Uh, without, in an age of unbelief like we live in, most people feel like they have a choice. Either they have no choice, but either to feel like they're the masters of their own lives or that they're the victims of all these other forces outside of themselves that they can't control. Right? It's either I'm the master, I'm going to do it, I'm going to control it, or I'm perpetually the victim of all these things that are outside of my control. The scriptures tell us here, no. God has established the world and, and runs it in such a way that he is in control, but he's in, in, in control for purpose, and he calls our activity into play in that purpose. We're not, as human beings, we're not just, just mere, merely victims. As human beings, we're called to be actors. We're, we're called to be active in how we respond to God and how we respond to one another, how we use the good things of creation. Think about the verse in the New Testament where Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Uh, human beings are created that way. We, we need to have uh, some skin in the game, if you will, because that's how God created us. Don't you see? We're not masters because God is. We're not purely victims because God's a good God. He's doing everything he does in order to enrich the world. And he's calling us into active participation with him, creating bread, creating wine, creating oil, etc., so that people's lives can be enriched. What a God. What a God that we serve. How good that can be to our heart to remember that. Don't you like David's nature show? I like it. It's better than the BBC. Because it's, it's, it's clearly not just trying to give us a science lesson. This is trying to give us a spiritual lesson. 
that we can apply to our everyday lives. Which leads us to our last thing, which is the application that David brings in verses 31 to 35. The praise of God. The praise of God. Have you ever heard this phrase? The crown of God's creation. The crown of God's creation. Have you ever heard that? What does that normally refer to? Man, yep. Human beings. The crown of God's creation. Why do you think they're called that? Or we're called that? I say there as if I'm not part of it. Why are we called the crown of God's creation? Dominion over the creatures? The last thing that was made on the list, right? Day six at the very end. Say it. In his image, image. yep. So we're lifted to a place above the other creatures, given a status and an assignment that's very different than the other creatures. The crown of creation. Uh, You might say that human beings are meant to be God's vice kings uh, on earth under him. That's a fair way to represent how Adam was made. And it's also a good reason to note that Jesus Christ, who's now man, does in fact reign as a man over this world. As the resurrected Son of God, he reigns as a man over the world for the purpose of bringing a new creation. Beautiful idea. Now, what is required of the crown of creation in the creation? That's what verses 31 to 35 is about. If we're the crown, what do we need to do? May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who touches on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. And then what does it say? I will sing. I will sing for how long? As long as I live. I will sing praise to God while I feel like it. Is that what it says? No, I'll sing praise to God while I have my being. Every moment that God gives me breath, every moment that I feel the effects of his generous creation and and providence over my life, I'm going to turn it back to him as a song. I'm going to turn it back to him as a meditation. Verse 34, my meditation should be pleasing to him. The thoughts that I think, the things that I pour over in my mind ought to be pleasing to God as I rejoice in him. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, he says. In other words, I, as a human, am, am called to praise God with my mouth, with my song, with my mind, and I'm called, to, I'm called to morally line up with God. Morally line up with him. To where what God considers evil, I consider evil, and what God opposes, I learn to oppose. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. This is not a personal vendetta. I've mentioned this a lot of times with the Psalms. This is not just me trying to get revenge for my personal grievances. This is me lining up with God to say sin is bad. And sin needs to be removed from this creation for it to be the house you always meant it to be. May it happen. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the angels obey you in heaven, let people finally obey you on earth the way you designed them to be. I'm lining up with you. This is the calling of human beings. Uh, Earlier it said, the birds sing in the branches. But don't you know bird song is a lot different than people song? How's it different? Besides the fact we can be off key and they never can. Right? 
Isn't that amazing how the birds are always right? But what's different about their song? Does it have lyrics? Nope. Even a parrot, right, can only parrot. Cannot make up new and unique lyrics to songs. What else is different about bird song? It's not intelligent. It's not intelligent. And it's only at certain times of the day, right? You know, it's not all the time. And it's not intelligent. They're not sitting there thinking, you know what? I choose to sing for the Lord right now. Now, mind you, they do sing for the Lord, but they sing unbeknownst to themselves to the Lord. They sing from, from you know, natural instincts. They can't help but sing. But here's humans. You have a choice. Are you going to sing or are you not going to sing? Are you going to talk about God or are you not going to talk about God? Are you going to sing about God or are you going to sing about something else? Are you going to sing about yourself? Uh, are you going to line up with God morally or are you not going to line up with God morally? Right? Are you going to take the side of sin or are you going to take the side of God? Are you going to care about whether your meditation is pleasing to God or not? No animal ever has to go through that in their minds. But that's also why no animal can glorify God the way we can. Because we reflect God in this way. God is intelligent. God has a will. God decides. God chooses to act according to his good pleasure. And we are called to, according to our pleasure, to, to be pleased to please God. To delight to sing his praises from one end of our life all the way to the next. To line up with God in everything he says. And to make it known that we do. Human beings are meant not only to be kings under God, but it turns out we're also meant to be priests before God. Priests. People who take all the good that God has given to us. This is what a priest does. He takes the good of people and he offers it on behalf of people for God. That's what priests did in the Old Testament. Takes everybody's gifts and offers it for them to God. We don't have priests in the New Testament church. At least not special people who are priests. Every one of us are priests, right, in the New Testament church. Because Jesus is the priest of the New Testament church. But here's what I'm talking about here. All of us as humans are designed to do what priests do. To take what God has given to the whole world and as the only intelligent creatures in it to give him intelligent praise. As the Bible says, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name and acknowledging his name. The goodness of God expressed in everything in this world deserves to be sung. It deserves to be meditated on and it deserves to be loved and chosen freely. The big question for us every day is, are we going to do that? Are we going to do that? Or are we not going to do that? A life of no praise and a life of no meditation is destined to be consumed from the earth. Let's don't choose that. A life, did you hear what I said? A life of no praise, a life without any meditation of God is destined to be consumed from the earth. 
I know that's not what you want. That's not what any of us want. And so what should we do? Choose a life of praise. Choose a life of meditation. How can we do that unless we take a nature tour every now and then? Unless we take account of our life every now and then and remember where it all comes from and why it was all given. And yes, there are very hard times in life where it's very hard to, rem- to do this. In fact, even the mention of sinners on the earth is just a little reminder in this psalm that's mostly bright and beautiful and wonderful. It's a reminder that not everything is so bright, beautiful, and wonderful, right? Not everything is. Not everything's roses and daisies. However, when it's not roses and daisies, you've got to sometimes fight to remember the roses and daisies and where they came from and why they were placed and why they smell so good. Because God intends for us as people to have pleasure in praising him. To have delight in lining up on his side to be his kings and priests in this world. One writer says this, and I'll leave you with this tonight. I'll actually read you two quotes. Uh, What the skeptic sees, one writer says, is a meaningless swarm of life. But the believer teaches us to view uh, us, us to view as giving some, excuse me, I think I typed that wrong because that doesn't make any sense. Let me try to edit it real quick. What the skeptic sees, uh, at, oh, okay, what the skeptic sees as a meaningless swarm of life, the psalmist teaches us to view as giving some inkling of the creator's wealth and of the range and precision of his thought. And because all is shaped by his wisdom, the creation is a unity not only stirring us to wonder, but inviting us to explore it. As another writer says, the creation has glorified God simply by being what it is, but man's response is personal. He alone on earth can sing to him intelligently by choice. There was singing in a delightful way in the bir- with the birds in verse 12, but here the song has content and it's meant for him, offered for God's delight from our delight. And that's where I want to leave you tonight. God is good. God is great. Sometimes in life, you want to separate those two for various reasons. You want to doubt one side or the other. Go back. Think about the world. Think about it as God describes it. Let your heart be filled with wonder again at some of those little things that you take for granted. So that you can remember that the God who is great is always good. And the God who is good is always great. God is good. And everybody says all the time. Maybe when we say God is good, say, oh, but he's also great. And when somebody says God is great, say, oh, but he's also good. Right? They go together.